Hey, everyone. So many of you have perhaps been here in the last couple of months. You know, I'm working on a series for the first half of this year on our sense of freedom. And we've covered the idea of freedom in how we interact in relationships. We've covered freedom in a couple different, uh, different other ways of looking at it. Tonight we're going to talk about freedom of emotion. And we're going to both ask and I hopefully answer the question, are we free to feel what we want to, free to feel? Or do our feelings sort of direct us into what to think and how to behave? Because I, I think that a lot of us could argue that one either way, that sometimes our feelings simply have to be felt and endured and acted upon. After all, isn't that maybe what saves us in a, in a moment when we need to make a, a knee-jerk reaction to swerve the car or to behave in a certain way? Isn't it that, that rush of adrenaline or feeling or grief or love or whatever it is that causes us to move forward? Or could it be that it is our thought processes that direct our feelings and that we actually have more volition over what we want to feel or choose to feel than we think. So hopefully we'll be able to both ask and answer some of those questions tonight. But you know where I want to start? I want to start 100 million years ago. I'm reintroducing Erg the cave person back again. Some of you remember him from last year. And uh, this year around, Erg's having a really good day. Yesterday, we managed to bring down a water buffalo, and oh, did we celebrate last night. So everyone has a nice full stomach. We're kind of sitting around the dappled sunshine, just enjoying our big bellies and enjoying the world. Nothing much worrying erg today. You know, it's so nice. I could even just kind of shut my eyes a little bit and enjoy things. And and one of the things you probably don't know is that 100 million years ago, our sense of smell was so well attuned that I could literally close my eyes and I would know if an animal or even another human being was approaching within a few hundred yards. Our sense of smell, you know those, those funny nasal passages we have now that mostly give us trouble? Well, <laughs> at the dawn of civilization, Actually, those were great sensitive mechanisms. And so, so even with my big belly and in the dappled sun, I could be lay back. And I would be able to sense, you know, if someone was like out in the parking lot, literally, or if an animal was approaching. And because that sense of smell hardwired into an early part of my brain called the limbic system, oh my gosh, I would spring to attention without even thinking about it. And I literally, because of the scent, would know whether it was another person, possibly even, scientists aren't sure about this part, but possibly even I would know whether it was someone from my own family or tribe versus someone that would be a stranger. And literally, the instant I knew that it was a, uh, an animal, maybe a, a certain kind of, I mean, saber-toothed tigers really smell a certain way. You take Erg's word for it. You can know when they're coming. One whiff will tell you. And I am immobilized, uh, and appropriately so, right? If it's something to be afraid of and something that I know is big and powerful, I'm like out of there faster than you can imagine. If it's something, on the other hand, that scent of something that maybe we could have for dinner tomorrow night, I'm in the process of rounding up my buddies and getting a club. Now, if it's another human being, there the story varies a little bit. If it's someone in my tribe, well, all right, you know, welcome friend. 
If it's someone I've never heard of, someone I've never smelled before, oh my gosh, before they're even within my sight, I'm like making myself look as big as I can, and I've got the look on my face, right? We'll check them out. If it turns out to be a friend, I don't have to bare my teeth anymore, but just on the off chance, someone's going to be there to take away that water buffalo remains that are still here that we're needing I'm going to be ready to fight tooth and nail, literally. Okay, let's fast forward again, 100 million years, and let me tell you what happened at the dentist's office the other day. <laughs> well, you know how I ramble a little bit. It's okay. We'll get there eventually. So I'm at the dentist's office. I come in, and oh my God, I can hear a young man, probably seven or eight based on the vocal range, that is just bellering for his life in the other room. Have you ever been in like a doctor's office or you know, someone getting a vaccination or something and the emotional response is just way out of line for what's really happening? Well, I'm listening and you would think that this young person is like, I don't know what, a root canal or you know, something bizarrely painful going on. And so I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, as a good science of mind person, I'm starting to do a little treatment, you know, knowing that there's peace of mind, that everything is going the way it should. And what I realized, though, is, so one of the parents is in the waiting room with me, and the way I could tell is she's like, she's like got a napkin in her hand, and she's like doing this, and finally she says, I'm just so sorry, it's, it's, it's our, you know, um, Bill, the husband's in there, and, and uh, I'm just so sorry, but you know, we made a big mistake. He chipped one of his teeth and he was asking about the dentist and what happens. And my husband said, well, they'll probably just use a, a drill and fill it up. And of course, you know, little Johnny knows what a drill looks like, right? He's been in daddy's workshop. And so, you know, she said, it's been like this all morning. It started as we got into the car because he has this idea. It's going to be this like this drill. <laughs> well, come to find out, they didn't do anything. It was a baby tooth, right? And it was chipped in such a way, well, it's going to fall out in a few years anyway. We just leave it in. So all of this bizarre hysteria, and nothing happened. The trouble with our 100 million year old limbic system is, that today it's still being triggered as though the saber-toothed tiger were there. Uh, the trouble with our 100-year-old our uh, connection between our, our, our sight and our smell and our sense of touch and the other senses that we have, they're still funneling through that really early limbic system, and boy, do they give us a lot of false starts. I mean, you see it in, in children in particular because, of course, they don't have the adult filtering mechanisms that we have. But don't you see it in adults as well? Haven't you encountered someone that is like nearly hysterical and they tell you like what happened or what's going on and you're, you know, you're a friend, so you don't want to really just say, well, so what? But <laughs> do you know what I mean? But that's kind of what you're feeling. It's like, well, that happens to everybody. And they're like, ah, help me. Well, that is our Olympic system still at work from the cave person days. 
But there's good news involved, obviously, as, especially as adults. We do have filtering mechanisms. Uh, we can uh, choose to modify some of our behaviors around our feelings. But I wanted to check out the actual science around the feelings that we have themselves. And so, interestingly enough, there are a couple uh, uh, neuroscientists on the track of this. This one is uh, Jill Bolte, a, a PhD in neuroscientist. She says, I define responsibility as the ability to choose how we respond to stimulation coming in through our sensory systems. Although there are certain limbic systems, emotional programs, that can be triggered automatically, right? So it's like the little boy thinking of the, the, dr <laughs> the drill <laughs> that triggered it. But this causes a surge through our body, and then it's completely flushed out of our bloodstream. An anger response, for example, is, programmed, is a programmed response that can be set off automatically. Once triggered, the chemical released by my brain surges through my body, and I have a physiological experience. That's, you know, the, the rush of adrenaline. You know, your face gets red. You tend to ball up your fist. You're ready to launch into it. She goes on. Within 90 seconds from the initial trigger, the chemical component of my anger has completely dissipated from my blood, and my automatic response is over. If I remain angry after those 90 seconds have passed, it is because I have chosen to let that circuit run. And so she goes on, moment by moment, I can make the choice to either hook into my neurocircuitry or move back into the present moment, experiencing life fresh. And it really works that way for all of those strong limbic systems. That little boy actually had to really work up a good fit going to keep it going. Because the initial sense of fear of that dentist drill um, you know, or the saber-toothed tiger hunting us down, or the person that cuts us off on the freeway, or whatever it is that triggers that intense initial, <gasps> you know, either for fight or flight or for anger or whatever it is, any of the strong negative emotions in particular, the actual limbic system only holds on to that for about a minute, a little bit more than a minute. And when people remain angry, when people remain profoundly afraid or a sense of anxiety, it isn't that they're doing it on purpose, but there is volition involved. Now, for many of us, if we've had a stressful life, if there have been a lot of those triggers in place, what tends to happen, of course, is it becomes habitual. We will become, a, what do they call them, a, a rageaholic for someone who's angry a lot of the time, uh, uh, someone that, that's anxiety-ridden a lot of the time, you, you know, might have some terminology to go with that. And, and it isn't that they're, of course, on purpose saying, yeah, I'm going to just rev this up. I'm going to have a conniption fit here to last for three days over this. But 
if it happens often enough, it can be a little bit of a habit. And I'm sure you've run into, again, it's more prominent in young children where, where, where they will have gotten certain kinds of uh, stimuli that, that, that feeds into them thinking, well, my parents will you know, give me some kudos or reactions if I maintain this hissy fit for a longer period of time. And, and you can even spot that in adults sometimes when they seem stuck, particularly in, in anger or sadness or things like that. Is this new information for you, or is this something you already kind of intuitively knew? A little of both. Okay, a little of both. What I would like to suggest, for those of you, especially for you men out there, do you know what the five-second rule in the kitchen is? Okay, all right. Does everyone so so the five second rule, and and of course I learned this as a teenager is if the potato chip falls on the floor, right? As long as you get it within five seconds, it's still fine to eat. Now, most of the men may appreciate that more more than some of the ladies. I don't know, uh, but I want to suggest that there's a ninety second rule around emotions. I would like us, if we could, to put a little filter in our brains. So that next time you end up feeling bizarrely angry or really put out or really worried or really nervous, I would like to suggest that the first 90 seconds are free. <laughs> the first 90 seconds of it, just feel it. You, you know, you deserve it. It's your limbic system that's trying to say, wait a minute, maybe there's something here I need to pay attention to. Right? When you get that rush of anger, well, maybe you should do something. Maybe you should call the police. Maybe you should get out of the car. I don't know. I mean, sometimes when we get those emotional triggers, they're absolutely there for a good reason, and we should react appropriately. But after the first 90 seconds, then it's something we're actually asking for. If the feelings, if we want them to persist, well, that's fine. And gosh knows, I've had a bad day where it just felt good to be poopy. Do you ever have a day where it's just like it's a down day? And, and, you know, so what if I feel sad? I'll just stay in my pajamas today and nothing. I mean, you know, it's like we all have days where we just feel a little bit stuck, but it's no big deal. But I want to make it clear that we actually have a choice on that. Beyond the 90-second rule, we can choose to have a different day. All right, leads me to tonight's joke. One night, a wife found her husband standing over their baby's crib. Silently, she watched him. As he stood gazing down at the sleeping infant, she saw in his face a mixture of wonderful emotions, disbelief, doubt, delight, amazement, enchantment, skepticism, enthusiasm, ultimately, ultimately joy. And touched by this unusual display and the emotional depth it showed, with her eyes glistening, she slipped her arm around her husband and said, Beautiful, isn't it? Stunning, he replied. I can't see how anyone can make a new crib like that for under $90. <laughs> we have, as 21st century people, an amazing range of emotions. We're not just powered by those old limbic system ones, which were primarily 
fight or flight, primarily anger and fear that would drive us forward. We're much more complex, and our cerebellum that sits on that older part of the brain allows us to process our emotionals in, in marvelous and more complicated ways. I mean, we really have a sense of everything from from ennui, which is like a mild discomfort with life, to, you know, terror, which is, you know, fear even amped up. And we, we kind of understand the full gamut of those sorts of emotions. And, and in science of mind, we have the ability to create a spiritual prototype for all of them. Now think about this just for a moment. We're, we're used to the idea of creating spiritual prototypes for abundance, maybe, or for the new job that we want, aren't we? We're used to thinking about, well, let's see, uh, the perfect relationship looks like this, and so when I do a science of mind treatment, I'm going to fill in the idea of what love is like and what a partnership would be like, and, and Ernest Holmes would say that's developing a spiritual prototype or a, or a science of mind picture of what it is you want. We can do the same thing thing with emotions. In fact, I would suggest to you that the little guy at the dentist's office had done just that. He knew how to pitch a fit, even if there wasn't anything directly that he needed to pitch one for. Well, we can do that for good. <laughs> if I could assign you some homework, well, I can always assign it, whether it gets done or not. That's another question. If I could, though, have you follow through with some of the most important homework of your life, I would suggest building some spiritual prototypes around the feelings that you cherish the most. So maybe you would have a, a prototype, a spiritual prototype on what success feels like. So that next time you were going in for a job interview or next time you were going to do a public presentation of something for work, you could center yourself in that spiritual prototype and just be invincible when you walked in that room or did that speech or, or went for that job interview. You might consider having a, a spiritual prototype for, for really what love feels like so that when you're a little on the blue side or your honey is out of town, again, you can center yourself in that picture of really what it feels like to love and be loved and the various qualities of it and how you feel in it. Because, right, in science of mind, we know it's more about the prototype first and the feelings will fall from it. I want to tease you with yet another bit of brain science, too. Because you might be saying, Larry, you're telling me to fake it before I make it. You're telling me that I should, in my head, feel happy when I'm not happy in order to, to try to shift it. And you know what? I am telling you that. But listen to this other um, article, and it might help change your mind a little bit. Does smiling make you happy? Now, most of you would say, well, no, it's happiness that makes me smile. It's like, you know, when things go my way and there's someone in the room I enjoy, or the conversation leads into an area that I want to go or whatever, well, then I smile. I'm happy. Listen to this. In 1989, a psychologist named Robert Janik published one of his most significant studies on the emotional effect produced by smiling. His subjects repeated vowel sounds that forced their faces into various expressions. To mimic some of the characteristics of a smile, they made the long E sound. 
which stretched the corners of the mouth outward. Other vowel sounds were also tested, including the long oo, which forces the mouth into a pouty expression. The subjects reported feeling good after making the long e sound and feeling worse after the long U sound. And this isn't the only subject. The, the article goes on to, to talk about three more studies. One of the, some of them elaborate and just zany as all get out. There was one Chinese one where people were putting pieces of chopsticks in their mouth that was artificially making them smile. And they did before and after studies that showed that the act of smiling would make you happier. All right, stunned silence is appropriate. That's, that's, that's fun tonight. So, so I want to ask you, is faking it until you make it a bad thing? Is it cheating? Or is it actually a fairly natural thing that we can do to begin directing our emotions into the way that we want to have them? So 90-second rule, first of all, that's a given and that's a freebie. Right? We are going to get pissed off when someone cuts us off on the freeway. We are going to feel sad when a, a, you know, a girlfriend texts us that, you know, <laughs> that that was the last date. Oh, by the way. <laughs> Those things are going to produce through that limbic response something going on in our head and our emotional, and we are going to feel it, and, and that's okay. And after about a minute and a half or two minutes, then, especially as adults, we can choose whether we want to continue that feeling or not. We have the ability to build a spiritual prototype and perhaps choose something different. Now, it may take some practice. This isn't something that we're used to doing, is it? This is a little different way of thinking of emotions. But with practice, we actually can get quite good at this. It's one of the ways that people train themselves over uh, fears of public speaking and other things, right? The, the fear is still initially there, and you got to practice until you work your way through it, and, and eventually, you know, there's no more fear of it. And, 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 and so it's a very straightforward process if we put some attention on it. Okay, so I mentioned the first bit of the homework, and that is building some spiritual prototypes, if you're willing. And I would say, just pick two or three feelings that are particularly wonderful or useful for you. So I, I mentioned the success one, because I'm thinking maybe that one could be really useful in some areas of life where we're trying something new and we're feeling a little hesitant about it. And so that uh, prototype of what does success feel like could be really useful. We're going to do a job interview. We're going to meet someone new for the first time. Wouldn't it be great to just feel like, yeah, I got this. But pick a couple other emotional states that are particularly uh, touching to you. Maybe love, maybe, maybe joy, maybe that sense of being in the right place at the right time. And, and build, a, a, build quite a scenario around it. Think about it in your mind. What, you know, how would you be feeling? What, you know, how would the room be? It's not that you're going to recreate the outwardness of this when you call upon it or need it. Uh, but, it, I, but it can help you anchor 
the feelings by thinking about, well, you know, on my perfect day when I'm the happiest, the sun would be shining and I'd probably be outside in nature and then I begin feeling almost like the warmth of the sun on me or hearing the ocean in the background or whatever that sense would be. And then pretty quickly you can begin to where you can kind of snap your fingers and be in that place, you know, be in that sense as you practice it. So part two of the homework is simply then to begin doing this. So next time that you observe yourself in an emotional state that you'd like to put aside after the first 90 seconds, right? Perhaps simply tell yourself, well, okay, that was unpleasant. Maybe I should feel some joy right now. And, and I think that without too much practice, you'll begin to, to see those little scenarios in your mind. You'll begin to feel that little sense of success or accomplishment or whatever the prototype is you have built. I think pretty quickly, because uh, the, the most important part is that you've rehearsed it a little bit. And then all you have to do is just notice the trigger, right? So once you can notice, okay, the 90 seconds is over, I'm finished with being pissed off, what would I rather feel instead? I'd rather feel the freedom of the open road. I'm picturing, a, a, sometimes I get a little crazed in traffic, I'll have to admit, especially uh, during rush hour, right? And so initially there's that sense of frustration and anger if someone cuts me off or does something rude out on the freeway, or even just if I find myself behind like four buses or something like that, right? So 90 seconds, okay. Is it productive for me to continue to feel angry? No, like not at all. Is there something I would rather be feeling instead? I actually like driving. That being on the open road, like for a road trip, those are things that I kind of cherish and, and enjoy. So I have a spiritual prototype for being on the road, being on the open road and enjoying the freedom of being out on the car, like on a, on a road trip on a Sunday down to the beach. And so, once I notice I'm pissed off, I let it run its course. You know, it's going to be there for a little while. And then I'm on Route 6 down to Tillamook. And the, the trees are around me, and I know the ocean's at the end of the road, and it's a, a lovely summer day. And, and do I manage to fool myself all the time? Of course not. Of course not. But you'd be surprised how often it takes me from being a pissed off man in the car to someone that is enjoying the afternoon again. I'm going to close today with a quote from Ernest Holmes and a prayer, of course. Um, the quote is from the, the Science of Mind. Uh, wait a minute. Where did, I know it's in here somewhere. This is from the Science of Mind textbook. And uh, he talks about this idea of being able to change uh, even the way we think of life. He says, life responds to us in the way that we approach it. We can choose to embody and by constant attention to take on the characteristics that we desire. And so, let us choose to be identified with power, with love, with beauty, with abundance, let us choose to identify ourselves with success or happiness or joy. Let us choose. Let us pray.
There is one power and one presence. There is one life and one consciousness in this universe. It's this thing that I call God. Of course, it goes by many names, by Allah, by the great goddess, by spirit. Regardless of that name, I think of it as simply everything. Every person, every place, everything, every situation. All the goodness that exists is part of God. And I'm pleased to say I recognize that includes me. That made out of that God stuff, I'm sitting right in the middle of the sweetness of life. If I choose it. And so on this day, for the the people in this room, on this lovely evening, I recognize that each person here is a divine center of uh, intelligent operation. And each of us us has the capacity for uh, uh, noticing their limbic system at work, (laughs) allowing those strong emotions to do what they need to do, and then to move on that each person here has the power to do a little practice and prototyping around some of the sweetest feelings, some of the most wonderful emotional content on this planet, and to choose it. To know when we have strayed too far into feeling sorry for ourselves or being angry or some of the emotional feelings that, that simply after their usefulness is done, sometimes persist. And so for each one of us, that power to choose differently, it exists. For each one of us, that ability to to know what happiness is and to choose it is so very powerful. It is with gratitude that I stand here this night Grateful for this chance of being with like-minded people. Grateful for this new information about how our brains work, about, about how our emotions work. Grateful, grateful for life. And so I release this prayer. I release it into the activity and the action of the law itself. I just let it be. And together we say, and so it is. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Thank you.